So am I, am I aware? Yes, I guess I am. <clears throat> Please excuse me. I've had a cold, so my voice is not as um, clear, perhaps. I will, I will try to enunciate. A little higher. Is that? Oh, yes, that's better. I can even hear that. And yes, I do joyfully cultivate a garden. And right now, I bet all of you are joyfully cultivating your gardens, too, because it is one gorgeous day out there. And as I was driving, um, I live up um, near the intersection of 84 and Skyline and driving down through the hills and then uh, over Edgewood to here. The flowering trees are just amazing right now. So all the more remarkable that you are all sitting inside today. I feel like IMC is uh, becoming a second home. Uh, I was recently here when uh, the new Dharma school got started, and I've been coming to um, the women and full moon evenings with Cheryl Gassner. So uh, I'm beginning to know some of you. I was here for the Right Livelihood one-day retreat with Gil, and uh, so it feels really nice. It feels like coming home to another family of Sangha. I thank you. Uh, My group, uh, when they meet on Saturdays, they have always something to study after the sitting. And one of the things that we're studying right now is this famous old poem called the Shin Shin Ming. And it's variously translated, but the newest translation is uh, Trust in Mind. And this is the one, I know you've all heard at least the first few lines. It's bandied about all the time. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Well, that usually gives everybody pause right there. (laughs) It goes on. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. And it is that essential peace of mind that I want to talk about today. When I was here for that one day of right livelihood, At some point, we broke up into groups, actually several times, but the last one, we talked about right livelihood from the point of view of the four Brahma Viharas. And it is the last one, equanimity, that I would like to concentrate on today. In this translation of the Shin Shin Ming, at some point in the commentary, the author Mu Soeng asks the best question. Whether you are Vipassana, or Zen, or Tibetan, or Catholic, or Sufi, or Wicca, I don't care, because the question still remains. Whether you have experienced some enlightenment like the Buddha or not, it doesn't matter, because the question is, How should one live one's life? 
This is why we come to spiritual practice. Sometimes you come, you know, especially in, in Zen practice, you come because you want that enlightenment experience at first. And you think, oh, yes, I'd like some of that. And that's just another form of materialism. It's spiritual materialism, right? Sometimes you come because you have a great crisis in your life and, and you feel the need of some anchor or community. And sometimes you genuinely come because there's something that seems to be missing. And I think this is what it is. We want to know how to live our life. How do we do that? Especially now. Things are so complicated. Life goes by so fast. I'm I'm reading a children's book where the, the premise right now is it's the mother's birthday and the only thing she wants is time. And so the boy sets out to get it for her and saying he lives in Ireland with the fairies. It turns out this is not as hard as you might think. (laughs) But we don't have fairies to help us find more time. So we need to live our life in the midst of what we've got. So we have this road map that the Buddha himself gave us. It's called the Eightfold Path. And it is because the Buddha understood very quickly how important some sort of guidelines would be, a little bit of moral training, shila. But in addition to this roadmap, we have four landmarks to look for and stand near when we're getting confused. And these are the Brahma Viharas. And I know that you guys know all of this by heart, but I'm just going to say it for the benefit of those who don't, maybe. The first is loving kindness, metta. And loving kindness counteracts anger and ill will, and it wishes others to be happy. And that's the first landmark of living our life. The second is karuna, compassion. And this is a remedy for cruelty. And it wishes others to be free from suffering. The third is sympathetic joy, mudita. And this is a remedy for envy and jealousy, even in the best of circumstances. Uh, Two weekends ago, I attended a ceremony at San Francisco Zen Center. And near the end of the ceremony, uh, there was a, a very big mucky muck from Japan. And I knew this because the robes he had on were the most beautiful brocade I have ever seen. And he was covered from top to bottom with it. And at some point, he was rather imperiously gesturing to someone behind me. And another monk came up who was dressed in almost as nice brocade. But he was clearly an underling. <laughs> And they had a little short conversation, and all this is taking place, and the ceremony is still happening, and it's because there are some gifts under his chair, and he wants the other monk to help him get them out. And Well, it turns out that we have to help because he can't do it from the side, but in any case, we get this gift out, and that man goes away, but 
Then the teacher starts imperiously gesturing for the next person. And this time, a very tall, thin American monk comes up. Now, from my practiced eye, I can see that he hasn't been practicing here in America. He's, he's American, but he's obviously been practicing in Japan just because of the nature of his robes. I can see this. His whole manner with this Japanese teacher was a marvel to observe. It was not obsequious. It was not condescending. It was not inferior. It was not superior. It was nothing but total care and kindness. At some point, this teacher got up, and he almost tripped, and the American monk was right there to help him. And when they went up for the Japanese monk to make his presentation of this Chinese poem that had been beautifully framed, I was in a position to watch the entire time as this American monk put his hand behind the Japanese monk near the small of his back, not touching. If this was his back, then two to three inches behind was this man's hand the entire time that he was also managing to take one of these portable microphones, hold things for the man, hand him the microphone, and translate because he spoke perfect Japanese. I watched this, and what arose in me was envy. (laughs) Because I thought, oh my goodness, look at the way that disciple treats his teacher. They must have been together a long time. They have such care for each other because it was clearly also reciprocal. There was such respect there. There was such care and kindness and just it was like watching a mother and a child in the best way. So I had to get over my envy and come up with sympathetic joy at that point (laughs) that there was this lovely relationship. But here's the amazing thing. A week later, At a different ceremony, I ran into this American monk. And I told him, I said, you know, I know it was a mountain seat ceremony to install a new abbot, but you actually were the high point of the ceremony for me. And he was very surprised. He said, what do you mean? And I told him what I had seen. And he kind of chuckled and he said, oh, yes, Uh, that was kind of a special case. He was a bigger mucky muck than anybody even knew. In Japan, he would have been the highest of the high, and he realized these Americans didn't understand this. But I actually didn't know him. I said, you're kidding. He said, well, in Japan, the priests of our lineage, it's a small family. I know who he is, and I've seen him before. But you just learn to treat your all these people like your father. That was a lovely teaching. So then I got over my envy and realized that what I really needed to do was develop a little more loving kindness. Anyway, it is the last Brahma Vihara that I really want to talk about. Equanimity or Upeka. Equanimity is what dissolves clinging, 
and attachment. Also, it helps with extremes of our reactive responses. The interesting thing to me when you look at the Brahma Viharas, though, is that the first three are really proactive contemplative practices. You can sit down and practice loving kindness. You can start with sending loving kindness to yourself. Or if that's too hard, you can send loving kindness to the person in your life that you care the most about. And then you work out from there. And hopefully you yourself are included pretty early in the phrase. And hopefully some of the people you least like get included. And the same thing with compassion. That is something that you can work with. And sympathetic joy. When you're feeling envious, you can remind yourself, as I did, ah, you should be happy for this person, that he has this wonderful relationship. But equanimity is something that it is very hard to actually practice because equanimity is what begins to manifest. It's not something that you can actually do. It is only something that you become. It is part of you. It is something that can be developed. But you can't actually try to do it. However, there is another practice that is related, and that is the practice of patience. The practice of patience will allow equanimity the space it needs to grow. There's a particular story that I like to to tell about the practice of equanimity or patience in this case. Because the real difficulty is that you may think that you are practicing to be equanimous, as the word is. But if you try to practice it alone, you will be fooling yourself. It is very easy to be in a state of equanimity when you're alone. And a lot more challenging when you are with others. So this is the story. It's a Tibetan story. About a century ago, the enlightened vagabond and Tibetan yogi Paltu Rinpoche was wandering as an anonymous mendicant, as was his wont, when he heard about a renowned hermit who had long lived in solitary seclusion. Paltu Rinpoche went to visit him suddenly entering unannounced into the monk's dim cave and peered about with a wry grin on his weathered face. Where have you come from? asked the hermit. And where are you going? I came from behind my back and am going in the direction I am facing. (laughs) The hermit was nonplussed, but bravely continued on. Where were you born? On earth. By this time, the hermit was getting a little agitated. What is your name? Yogi Beyond Action. 
Paltru Rinpoche then inquired as to why he had come to live in such a wild and remote part of the country. Ah, this was a question that the hermit was prepared to answer. I have been here for 20 years in meditation. At this time, I am meditating on the perfection of patience. And all this was said not without a touch of pride. Oh, that's a good one, said the anonymous visitor. And leaning forward as if confiding something to him, Paul True whispered, Ah, a couple old frauds like us could never manage anything like that. The angry hermit rose abruptly from his seat. You're a liar, he exploded. Who do you think you are disturbing my retreat like this? What made you come here? Why couldn't you leave a humble practitioner like me to meditate in peace? Oh, and now, my dear friend, where is your perfect patience? (laughs) Exactly. Where indeed, where does it go? The moment somebody says something offensive or does something that we don't like or tells a story about us that's not true. Oh, the ego gets very. And what is that? What is there actually there to protect? But we believe it. And so we respond. And usually not with an equanimous mind. So what exactly is equanimity? Again, from this book, The Shin Shin Ming, this is the best description I've ever heard of it. It's the quality of being in the world in which the mind has become pliable, stable, flexible, not fluttering, concentrated, without blemish, purified, cleansed, and free of all defiling tendencies. This is the awakened mind, and the resulting functioning state of such a mind is one of clear, unprejudiced perception. Ah, wouldn't we all like that? So when I read these words the first time, pliable, stable, flexible, I thought, ah, like bamboo. You know, if you have bamboo in your yard and you're watching it during a big storm, it bends way one way and way the other, but it never breaks. I mean, I had a redwood tree come down near my, I mean, literally missed my house by four feet. Redwood trees never come down. But at that big storm during Christmas holidays, that Christmas Eve, I guess, or Christmas night, I wasn't actually here when it happened, this enormous redwood tree came down. But the bamboo, I have never seen bamboo come down. In fact, if anything, you want to get it out, forget it. It is so stable in the ground. It has a root system, defies logic. But up above, totally flexible. So it's grounded, but willing to move. Usually when we think about being strong or confident, 
we become a total root system. Or if we think that we want everyone to like us and, you know, we're always the conciliator, then we're just nothing but the upper part of the bamboo swaying all over the place. He says this not fluttering brings butterflies to mind to me. But also, I have another image that I always hold for myself of the buoy. And I've probably shared this with you before. But the buoy is like bamboo in that the whole point of a buoy is to stay in one place. You know, it doesn't do much good if it's out in the San Francisco Bay Channel and it's moving around. The ships don't know whether they're going to go down the middle in the deep water or whether they're going to run aground. So the buoy has to be able to stay in one place. And how does it do that? Well, there's this enormous chain that connects the buoy down to the ocean floor. Now, the buoy, no matter what goes by, whether it's a sailboat or a yacht or a tanker, the buoy starts swaying back and forth a lot. But after a while, the buoy comes back to center. Now, it might come back to center without the chain, three miles out to the ocean, you know, flies around, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about staying in one place, stable, and at the same time being able to come back to center in that place. So the buoy is connected by practice, that's the chain, to the ground of being, mind. And when he says concentrated, without blemish, purified, he's talking about trying to stay in this moment. Because if you're in an argument and you immediately revert to the past and you dredge up everything, every mark you've ever made against that person, and then you bring that into the present, is it going to make it better or worse? It's going to be rather hard for both of you to be equanimous. Or if you're worried about the future, this happens a lot of time for parents with children. We're worried for them, and we bring our worry for the future into the present moment. And that also takes away our equanimity. So to be concentrated in a pure state is to be just in this moment with things as it is, as Suzuki Roshi used to say. So what prevents equanimity? Well, that list is kind of long, but basically, Shantideva says it this way, getting what I do not want and all that hinders my desire. There my mind finds fuel for misery. Anger springs from it, oppressing me. As long as we are stuck in preferences, like the Shin Shin Ming says, as long as we are setting up what we like against what we dislike, this is the dis-ease of the mind. This is where we get caught, which is not to say that you shouldn't have opinions. 
and that you shouldn't feel strongly about things. There are some things worth feeling strongly about. But be careful. Be careful that you do not become attached to your feelings strongly. Because the most important thing is harmony. And there are many ways up the mountain. But if we're all fighting at the base of it, we will never get there. So patience, it turns out, is the practice that we can do, is the antidote to that dis-ease that will allow equanimity to unfold. This is why it is one of the six perfections. The two characters in Japanese, Chinese, that make up the word patience look like this. And I know you can't tell, and it's done rather artistically, but this character down here is the one for shin, which means heart-mind. And the upper character is the character for sword. The meaning is that we have to bear something painful in the heart. How many times have you been trying to be patient with someone? It is very hard to do sometimes, especially when you feel provoked, especially when you feel like you've told them time and time again not to do that very thing, and there they are again. It's painful. The sword blade is poised, ready to strike. Backed into a corner, we cannot move. And therefore, it is called patience, or the other meaning of this character combination is endurance. When we don't know which way to turn or where to go, any movement at all cannot only further muddy the water, but can also bring disaster. The sword blade severs the heart, and all is lost, and thus the value of patience. These are the words of one of my Dharma brothers, known in Chawani at Nebraska Zen Center, describing what his teacher told him about these characters. So, patience is hard, and it is sometimes painful even to practice. But it is either that, or we will end up cutting our own heart. This is the understanding that we need about emptiness, about our connection with everything, about our no-self. That when I'm not patient with my husband, which if he were here, he would say many times I am not, uh, who does it hurt the most? Well, it hurts him at the time that I am saying these unkind words, But it hurts our relationship and it hurts me, especially afterwards when I realize, okay, so what does it matter that he lost his keys or his glasses or whatever again in the house and we've got to run around trying to find them? You know, I've told you again and again, put them in one place. (laughs) So the last time this happened, it was the morning I was having a retreat at the house. 
He was trying to get out the door at 6.30 in the morning, and he cannot find his keys anywhere. There was this momentary arising of, I can't believe it. I've got 15 people in the other room, and i got to help my husband find his keys. But then, all of a sudden, it was so wonderful. I thought, you know, you know if you get impatient, it's going to make him even crazier because he's already getting very nervous that he can't find them because he really, from his point of view, has looked everywhere. And he's, he's getting stressed. And it was so wonderful because for a change, I said to myself, you know what? Relax. Take a deep breath. You know they are here. You just need to help him find them. You need to help him calm down. And so instead of berating him, which was more my normal pattern, I have to admit, why didn't you put them where you would find them? I said, you know, they're here. I will help you. You go look in your car again. Look through every single thing. I'm going to look through your office. And then I thought like my husband. (laughs) And I realized that they were somewhere in his office underneath a stack of something. And so I just started lifting up stacks, and sure enough, I found them. However, if I had lost my patience, not only would he have gotten more stressed out, I would have returned to my retreat all stressed out and then angry at him for having taken me from my retreat and making me stressed out. And something would have gotten lost and something would not have gotten learned. And as it is, he was very grateful that I didn't get upset with him. And I was very grateful that I didn't get upset with him. But it's hard because our habitual patterns, I think back, I understand why I am an impatient person. My family are all impatient. I grew up with a family that everything had to be done yesterday. Hurry, 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 always. This is the problem with all of our behavior. It is so old. It is so ingrained. So there are three categories of patience practice. And I don't have much time, so I'm just going to go through them very quickly. The first is reframing our attitude toward discomfort. Patience practice is not easy, and sometimes it is actually painful. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable with it. Because there are people who really try our patience. I have children who try my patience. And when I see them walk in the door of the library, there's a part of me that says, oh, that child is here. And then I have to reframe it and say, ah, What a wonderful learning opportunity. (laughs) Let's see if we can do something different today with this child. But I have to think it. I have to feel that first, oh, and then I have to remind myself, you have a practice opportunity. Don't waste it. You have to build patience, just like a muscle. I don't know why it is, but um, I'm always amazed when people come to sitting practice and after they've been there a week, oh, I just can't clear my mind. I'm just no good at this. 
a week. So at one point recently, I said to my group, I said, you know, they say it takes 10,000 hours to become a master at anything. Why do you assume then that you can walk in off the street and sit down and in two or three sitting periods, clear your mind? It's an art just like anything else, and it takes time. The second practice of patience is understanding the complexity of any situation. Understanding cause and effect, karma. Understanding impermanence. So, if our suffering, for instance, is caused by something inanimate, you know, a tree branch falls down and hits us on the head. We're going to be in pain, but we're not going to be angry at the tree for dropping the branch on our head. But if someone were standing and sitting up in the tree and they dropped it on our head, we'd be plenty angry with them. This is like being angry with children. There's no point. There is no point being angry with each other because each of us is acting from where we are. And I fundamentally believe that we are all trying to do our best, even if it doesn't look like it to anybody else. Because fundamentally, everybody wants to be loved. Everybody. And so why would you behave badly on purpose? It's because you don't know any better. It's because of training and bad habits that may start very, very young. So, a human being is a victim of habitual patterns. And we may wish to help change those patterns. We may wish to help that person, but to get angry is kind of beside the point. To try to be patient with people's habitual behavior is is the road to equanimity. Thus, Shantideva says, when friends or enemies are seen to act improperly, be calm and call to mind that everything arises from conditions. Every bad habit that you or I have, my impatience, your anger, my envy, your tendency to stress, whatever it is, it is habitual. It's easy to fall into it and don't be discouraged. The Buddha himself is our best example that it is possible for human beings to overcome this. The last practice for patience is to develop tolerance. Everybody in this room is a unique, wonderful human being. And that means that you're different than me. And that means we're going to have different opinions. And the way is not difficult as long as you let go of preferences. But we don't want to let them go. We like our preferences, and we want you to have them too. (laughs) So the amazing thing is we are very willing to harm ourselves. We are willing to lie to ourselves, 
and to others. We are willing even to kill ourselves. This is serious. We steal, which hurts ourselves. You know, you might lie on your income taxes. And who's hurting? The government doesn't really, but you will because you know you've done it. When we speak unkindly, all of these things are actually hurting ourselves. So is it any wonder that we are able to hurt others if we're even willing to hurt this most valuable ourself? So in a sense, try to remember that when others are hurting you, it's not personal actually. It may sound like it, it may feel like it, but it is actually just their habitual response. And you have an opportunity to do something different with it. So how do we live one's life, our life? By practicing patience, we develop equanimity. By developing equanimity, we form the ground for loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy. And as Musoang said, this is the awakened mind. And the resulting functioning state of such a mind is one of clear, unprejudiced perception. And that is the Buddha's mind. Thank you. Oh, I just made it. (laughs) It's 1045. So I'm not even going to ask for questions because I know some of you probably need to leave. If you'd like to ask a question, please come.